Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the Why dark? do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientist with me, Sue Marchant and Dave Ansell. Now then, what's new in the world of science? Well, if you wander outside and if ever, if the sky's ever clear, if you want to have a look up into the sky, um, you ought to be able to see a comet. Um, this is, at the moment, it's called, it's called Comet Lulin. Um, it's appeared from the outer reaches of the solar system. Um, as far as we know, it's probably not going to stay in the solar It's not going to come ever come back again. It'll just keep it. It's going to come go around the sun and keep on going out and out and out. It's, uh, if you look in the constellation of Leo, which should be rising about sort of just above the horizon this time of night, um, just to the sort of south of east. Um, there should be a fuzzy blob in there. I haven't seen it myself, I'm afraid, because it hasn't been clear enough in the last no. week or so. It's, a, it's quite rarely you get comets which are bright enough we can actually see. Yeah. Um, this one, it's interesting, it's, its tail fell off a couple, um, about a month ago. Really? Basically, the comet's tail, the comet itself is a ball of kind of... Um, get water ice and frozen gases things like frozen carbon dioxide mm. and other things when the, when it comes in close to the solar system it starts getting hot and it starts boiling and throwing out um gases and dust and mm. this forms like it would just form a cloud of um kind of get dust around it however because there's an effect called the solar wind which is little particles being um thrown off the sun all the time incredibly fast this bashes into the dust so it pushes it away from the comet. So the tail always points outwards away from the sun. Um, however, about a month ago, the, the, the tail of the comet got hit by what's called a coronal mass ejection. So we get a huge explosion on the sun, which throws out an extra fast piece of gas, um, which caught the tail and pushed the tail, which had already existing, away much faster than it could be made. Mm. And so there's, there were two, this ended up with two bits of tail, one new bit which is being made, an old bit which got pushed away. So, so the weather's changing in the universe as so well. So yeah, you get, you get solar weather, you get um, weather in the solar system and it will affect your... Yeah. In fact, it can affect um, satellites quite negatively if mm. the Earth gets hit by one of these coronal mass ejections. Um, it can cause all sorts of havoc with satellites yeah. and even knock out power grids. Same, we think it's all down here. It's up there as well. All right, let's get on to our science questions now. Andrew in Cambridge, um, first in tonight, he says some bicycles are very friendly and allow you to steer them hands off the handlebars. Oh, you rebel, you Andrew. Other bicycles are not so forgiving. Why is this, Dr. Dave? It's all to do with the angle of the front forks. The reason why a bike tends to um, steer itself upright all the time is that essentially the front forks aren't vertical. If you ever looked at a bike, they sort of point forwards. And this means the point at which the um, wheel touches the ground is actually further back than you'd expect it to be. This means that when the bike starts to tip to the right, the front wheel will 
fall to the right as well. If you ever tried to wheel a bike too slowly and it tips over one way, then the wheel tips with it. Yes. Um, this means that if you start to fall to the right, then the wheel falls to the right as well, and then it sort of turns inwards. And then it, so you start to turn to the right, and if you turn to the right, then sort of then you'll sl- work. Then it sort of work its way back underneath you again, and so you end up upright. So the bi- the bigger this effect is, the more sloping the front um, forks are, the easier it is to stay up on a bike. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, definitely, racing bikes tend to have quite a big uh, angle on the front forks. Um, mountain bikes tend to have less of one, I guess, because mm. you. I'm not sure whether it's some, it might have something to do with um, going over rough ground, although I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, sure. Suspension on the front wheel or something. All right, we live and learn something every day. Julie, uh, sorry, June in Braintree. Her question is, I recently saw Appetise digital photo frames. Do they work on the same principle as the digital camera? Um, in some senses, they do. Uh, a digital camera, it's very similar to a normal camera. Um, all of the bits are the same, apart from where the film should be. Where the film should be, you've got lots of little sensors, um, a, huge, a little piece of silicon or other semiconductor device, device um, with lots of lots of little tiny sensors on them. And when light hits them, it affects um, the charge, the electricity on on the sensor. And so then the computer inside the camera can read all the individual sensors and build up a picture of what light is shining on it through the lens. Um, so basically a digital camera will convert a picture outside into a load of computer data, a load of information. Mm. A digital f- photo frame is actually much more like a mo- computer monitor. Um, it's basically just a little piece of, a little tiny computer in it, a little bit of software which will take um, p- uh, picture files mm. and then display them on your on, a, on its attached monitor. Mm. So basically it will, you can program it to do various things to, to, to make different pictures go up one at a time. Is it energy efficient? Not very. <laughs> it's a lot better than using a monitor. Is it? Uh, that would be more energy efficient than a monitor. Sure. But it will need. It does need a backlight. Mm. Um, with because all the modern ones, the present ones are LCD, so you need a black backlight, and that's not very energy efficient. People are working on ones which basically they they use electricity to change the, what they're displaying, um, but they don't need backlighting or any electricity to keep running. But those are going to be sort of four or five years off. Um, using that, in fact, using that technology, there was a company actually quite near here called Plastic Logic, which is um, which have just brought out a thing for reading kind of books on, which is very thin, and that uses a really interesting display technology whereby they've got little balls mm. and little tiny, tiny balls, um, like much less than a millimetre across, and one half of them is painted black and the other half is white, and then the uh, then the device can just turn them round. So in each different place, it can turn them into black or white. And so you can sort of build up a display. And because they stay where they're put, they don't need any electricity to stay there. So you can sort of load a page up and then it doesn't use any more electricity once it's up. Ah, OK. Um, if you fancy one of those, it's easier to have a book, isn't it? <laughs> Unless we do school the trees. <laughs> um, let's get out into the wild outside now. Mark near Ipswich says, We're reading books about the wild berries that are poisonous. Is there a testing kit so that you can do this without having to take a book everywhere? A testing kit? Hmm, Mark. <laughs> Not that I've heard of. You can get kits which will detect certain poisons. I mean, if you look, you can definitely get them for detecting things like heavy metals. And you can probably get kits which will detect certain sets of poisons, individual um, poisons. The problem with something biological like berries is that biological systems are horribly, horribly complicated. 
and um, you could probably develop a test. For, it would be quite expensive to develop each one, which would detect for a single molecule which was poisonous. Mm -hmm. So you might be able to detect for to build a test. I'm sure there are um, um, tests which will detect digitalis in foxgloves, for example, which does bad things to your heart. Um, however, that wouldn't work on a poison in a fungi. Um, and so you could probably buy tests which would test for some poisons, but there are millions and millions, if not billions, of poisonous chemicals made by plants and animals. Mm. And being able to test for all of them at once is going to involve a kit which is going to be much larger than the book you were thinking of carrying. Mm. Uh, at some point in the future, we, the technology might be there whereby you could shrink down thousands of different tests so you could test in one easy to carry kit mm. but at the moment the kit would would be the size of a lorry mm. okay mark you be careful what you're thinking about scoffing when you're out and about in the country I'll stick to the book <laughs> exactly <laughs> now hi sue says gerald the drive from school had the reluctant physicist yasmin aged 12 and a half uh, moved from comments on old wives towels to what goes up must come down unless it goes into orbit only wanting to know about energy to achieve escape velocity from the surface of the earth what is rocket fuel anywhere and will it run out along with the petrol mm, yasmin i think you're going to be a scientist one day <laughs> that sounds good it does um uh, uh, rocket fuel is it can be a variety of things it's basically something with a lot of energy in it um, the idea is you get something very very hot when a gas gets very very hot it expands a lot um, so as it expands it'll come out the bottom of the rocket um, very quickly as, and as it pushes downwards it also pushes up on the rock, rocket and so the rocket goes upwards um, popular rocket fuels um, things like the boosters on the space shuttle basically mm. work on a rocket fuel broadly similar to gunpowder it's not exactly gunpowder, it's got a different, but it's the same sort of thing, it's a solid thing, you light a blue touch paper at the bottom, it burns, produces lots of gas, pushes down, pushes the rocket up very hot, mm -hmm. very fast. Um, other things you can use, um, you can use paraffin and oxygen, um, paraffin will burn very well in oxygen, um, and so that gets very hot, throws lots of stuff out the bottom. Um, if you want to, the best chemical rocket fuel we've got is actually hydrogen and oxygen. Mm. Um, basically, if you burn hydrogen and oxygen, you produce water. It's relatively environmentally friendly because of this. Some of the other ones can be quite nasty. Um, and the, the amount of energy released by, by this is very large compared to the mass of the hydrogen. Mm. So that's about your best bet. Um, one, it's probably not going to run out in this because you can always make it by splitting water, by passing electricity through water. Have, it does take a lot of energy to produce. So mm. if we run out, if we run out of coal, we're going to have to build a lot of wind turbines just to be able to build um, space rockets. Mm. Um, but there's no intrinsic reason why, if we ran out of all the oil and the coal, we couldn't make rocket fuel. Mm. Interesting stuff. Dangerous though. Um, Helen says, "What is the boiling point of water?" And lots of love to you and Dr. Dave. Thanks, Helen. Um, as long as you're um, on normal um, pressure, if you're atmospheric pressure um, and the water is pure, it's, I think, ever so slightly below 100 degrees centigrade, about 99.7 degrees centigrade or something. Um, it's what well, It ought to be 100 degrees centigrade. In fact, 100 degrees centigrade is defined as a boiling point of water. Um, but I... But these things tend to be sl um, off slightly because but if all these things were defined 200 years ago when people were working out all their systems. And so it's ever so slightly odd, but near enough 100 degrees centigrade. Mm. If you uh, increase the pressure, it goes up. The, boi the boiling point goes up. So that's how a pressure cooker works. 
So if you jam the, if you seal seal the top, yeah. you don't let the steam out, then the pressure will build up and build up, and at that point the boiling point of water might be 120, 130 degrees centigrade. Yeah. Cooking happens faster the hotter it is, so you can cook faster at that temperature. Right. Um, Jill has called in. She says um, on her radio the aerial's broken, so she put the aerial up against the little bit that was, you know, that was broken off, yeah. and it works even better when she's near it. Why can her radio use her as an aerial? Um, you, you can't, your body will affect radio waves quite a lot. Sometimes it helps, sometimes it hinders. It depends how the, how it's working. It's really annoying if you're trying to set up a TV aerial and you get it absolutely perfect while you're holding onto it and then you walk away. Um, and then you lose all the reception. Um, your body does conduct electricity reasonably well. It's not a good conductor like a, a piece of, um, copper or steel, but it's a lot better than an insulator like plastic. Um, and radio waves, the way a radio works is that radio waves are electromagnetic radiation. That means that when they hit something which conducts electricity, like the wire in the aerial, they cause electric currents to flow up and down them. Um, and then that electric current, your radio detects and mm. turns into the sound, or if it's a TV, it turns into the TV picture. Um, now, if you grab hold of the aerial, then the electric currents which are flowing through you, so, so basically the radio waves hitting you will cause electric currents to flow in you, and then mm. those can get across to the aerial. Uh, in fact, the electric currents flowing in, in, moving up and down inside you will re-emit radio waves because the way you transmit a radio wave is by you put, put a big electric current up and down an aerial and, that, and then that emits radio waves. So, in fact, by you just being near there, um, the, it'll cause electric currents inside you, then you'll re-emit radio waves, which the radio might pick up better than the ones which came straight in, depending on exactly where you are and how you're standing. So yeah, I mean, basically, that's effective. It's a bit like you can um, focus. Essentially, you're focusing the um, radio waves onto the thing. If you actually grab hold of it, the same current can flow through you mm. and into the um, radio. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientists, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientists, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientists.com slash podcast. Now, Jackie and the Borders. Hello, Jackie and the dogs. Um, hi to both of you, she says. Interested to know, and being an environmentalist, if a plane load of X number of people would use the same amount of fuel as those X number of people going on holiday in their cars and travelling around? Ooh, that sounds like a bit of maths, Dave. Um, if you drove the same distance as you went by plane, um, definitely if you're driving on your own, you'll actually use more fuel. However, it's quite rare that you would... I mean, for example, if you were flying to America or something, that's three thousand. I mean, the closest part of America in a couple of thousand miles, if you're going to the other side, maybe even 5,000 miles. And it's very rare that anyone would drive 5,000 miles each way to go on holiday. Um, so, I mean, so basically, you're better, if you're definitely going to go somewhere, you're best off going by train. Uh, if, it's a fair, if it's a long way, it's be- you are actually better environmentally going by plane. But the problem with planes is it makes it so easy to go a very, very long way that you can burn a huge amount of fuel without a lot of effort. Um, so it is better. So if you get definitely if you're going on your own, it's probably better to fly. If you've got the car absolutely full of people, it's probably better to drive. Um, but 
if you're if you're driving somewhere, then part of the holiday is the driving around. So you probably won't get nearly as far. Um, so if you if you're just going to France, it's put, it, um, it's more efficient to drive because a lot of the fuel is used in a plane getting up and down. So if you're going a short distance, you're a lot better driving. But if you're going a long, long way, then you are better flying. But you're more likely to. So that's bad. <laughs> mm, Vegas. That's what I say. And in Peterborough, um, talking of the sky at night, reminded me when I came out of P- Peterborough Cathedral one evening, pretty sure it's facing west, and about a third of the way up the sky, I saw a light in the sky. Is it possible that she is seeing the space station? It is possible you can see the space station with the naked eye. It's, it's quite a bright star. Um, it would be moving quite fast. Um, it goes over the sky in sort of, I think, a few minutes. So it would definitely be noticeably moving across the stationary stars. There are other things that could be... You can actually see other satellites if you lie out at night. You'll occasionally see lights which are moving. Some of them sometimes they flash as well as satellites mm. spin and mm. different um, flat bits of the satellite reflect the light into you like a spinning mirror. Mm. Um, so it could be a, a satellite, um, it could be the space station, it could also be a plane. If plane landing lights are pointing at you, they look like a very bright light, even, and you can see them quite a very long way away. Um, so there's all sorts of things that could have been, but it could certainly have been the space station. You, you can look up on the web where you can find this, where the space station is, and so you could have, so you, kept, you could find out whether it was visible at that time. Without knowing exactly when you when you saw it, it would be hard to know whether it could have been the space station or not. Plenty of questions coming in tonight, Dave. Um, Malcolm has sent a text in. He says, um, is it a fact that the human body is affected by lunar cycles? And is that because of its water content? I think it's certainly a possibility that the human body um, is affected by the lunar cycle, especially if you're living somewhere where it's dark out in out in the um, in the sticks, mm. where there isn't a lot of streetlights about. There's probably a good reason for this. In the, if there's a full moon, then the lighting is very good for predators to go out hunting, because predators like dogs and cats, mm. their eyesight tends to be a bit better than their prey animals, um, and so the, the advantage is when they can just about see something. So if a dog and cat can just see something, it's less likely to be able to see them. They're more likely to be able to hide in the undergrowth and be able to creep up close enough to to catch it. So on nights with a full moon, that's a really good night to go hunting because you've got all the advantages. You can can just about see things that you you can probably hide from them, which means that if you're an animal, either if you're an animal which likes hunting, then it's a good time to be awake and alert to go hunting. Mm. And if you're an animal which might be a prey animal for... um, then it's a good night. Then it's a night when you have got to be worried and keep your eye out for things. Sure, um, it's very unlikely to do. I think what they're saying is the water content is because of the tides. Mm. Uh, I think this is very unlikely for a couple of reasons. One of them is that um, the effect of the tides is basically um, it would reduce your weight by about one in a th- one part in a thousand. So your weight will change slightly during this, um, lunar, as the moon goes round. Some points the moon's gravity is um, acting against the Earth's gravity. Other times it's um, not, and so you might get a bit lighter or a bit heavier. Um, this will affect anything with mass, not just water. It actually, the Earth itself will distort with mm-hmm. the tides. It's not just the water moving around. Mm-hmm. So the, the tides will affect everything, not just water. And the other one is that you get two tides every month, not one. 
Sure. And so, and people tend, people who are affected by the moon tend, it tends to be full moons, uh, full moon versus new moon, not um, that they're excited at full moon and new moon. Uh, And if it was to do with the tides, you'd have to be excited at both full moon and new moon. So I think people probably are affected by it because it's a useful feature for an animal to be, to know what the moon is because of the light levels and hunting, but it's not to do with, it's not to do with tides. All right. Applicable to werewolves, I suppose, isn't it? Mike in Colchester. Um, now, here's a question. Um, they're starting to allow mobile phones on aeroplanes. When you move around the country, your mobile phone switches from ground station cell to ground station. What happens when a plane full of people with mobile phones goes over a ground station? Will it cause the ground station to potentially overload, trying to switch them all to somewhere else? That's a very, very good question, and that is the reason, one of the reasons why mobile phone companies have been very, very anti um, the plane companies letting you have phones on in planes. Um, the problem is slightly more subtle than what he's saying. Um, the problem is that if you're talking on a mobile phone, you essentially you're using a, f- a few frequencies, mm. and there's a limited number of frequencies available. If you're in on the ground um, and there's hills around, then you'll only be able to see a few um, mobile transmitters. So you only so you'll only cause interference on a few other mobile transmitters, which yeah, maybe only for sort of three or four miles away, um, because there's there's hills in the way, there's trees in the way, there's buildings in the way. So your signal won't get too far, and so you only kind of ruin those frequencies for a few local transmitters mm. if you're on a plane there's two things one the further away you are from a local transmitter the more the phone turns up the volume so it can hear you um, so that you can still communicate and if you're in a plane you can see hundreds and hundreds of different cells all at once so mm. you can cause interference on all of the cells at the same time and so one phone can cause a hundred time can use up a hundred times as much space on the network as it would do normally Maybe no, definitely tens and tens of times as much space that we do on the network no, normally. Um, the, what they're doing with allowing the phones on planes is instead of having um, lots of uh, using the cells which are already on the ground, the idea is to put a little tiny cell um, transmitter inside the plane. So when you um, use your phone, when you talk on your phone, it's actually talking to the plane, which then sends a signal up to a satellite and then back down into the te- um, telephone system. And because that transmitter is very, very close, mm. the phone doesn't have to transmit very powerfully in order to be able to talk to it. So it doesn't. So it's not transmitting very powerfully to everything else everywhere. So it's fine. But yes, if you use a phone without a, uh, if you're on a plane without its own little cell mast inside it, um, phone mast inside it, then you can cause havoc with the phone system. Mm. I wonder whether people reckon, uh, you know, whether whether they think mobile phones should be allowed on on planes. You know, is it annoying somebody sitting next to you, a total stranger, talking to somebody about loudly for yeah, loudly ten hours, for ten hours. <laughs> Hello, <clears throat> I just wonder what people think. Anyway, moving swiftly onwards, um, Ralph in Stamford. Um, he heard in the last couple of days that you can put two eggs in a colander and you can steam them. Does this make them soft? a soft-boiled egg as you are steaming them? And also, is this possible? And how long would it take to do it in this way? Mm. Um, I have no idea how long it would take because I've never tried it. I think the only way the only way to find out is either to find a recipe book which would tell you or to do the experiment. Kitchen science. Do a kitchen science on it. Yeah, that would work. There's no reason why you couldn't steam eggs. Um, basically, all you've got to do to cook an egg is get it hot. If you get it hot and you have to get it hot for long enough, then there's a load of chemical reactions which go on inside it. The chemical reactions which which make it go from being kind of runny to being st- stiff and hard-boiled are to do with proteins inside the egg, 
that's what you call they, they denature they don't act it's not actually a chemical reaction but the protein molecules change their shape and instead of kind of keeping themselves themselves they start tangling up and forming a rubbery mess mm. and that's basically to do that you've basically just got to heat the egg up to a high enough temperature for long enough so if you steamed it it probably wouldn't heat up quite as quickly as it would do if you were boiling it but if you keep it hot enough for long enough you will be able to um hard boil it mm. so it's, it'll just be to do with how long you cook it for as it is when you boil them Mm. Uh, one on the email this time um, how does an ultraviolet glue work um, chemically when it cures in sunlight or an ultraviolet lamp okay um, most of these glues um, they're polymers so polymer is a big long stringy molecule and when and normally the, the individual molecules will just happily sit next to each other um, they, they get a bit gloopy and they're a bit gloopy because they tangle up with each other a bit, but they'll, they'll untangle slowly and you can pull past each other. But if you hit the, these particular polymers with ultraviolet light, the ultraviolet light sort of damages the molecules and causes them to react to, to one another, gluing the polymers together. Mm. So instead of having lots of individual strings, you have lots of strings tied together in lots of places, like a big sort of tangled net. If you glue them together a bit, then it forms a rubbery sort of molecule. If you glue them together a lot, mm. then it forms a solid molecule. Mm. So, yeah, it's cross-linking polymers is what it's called. Um, we did a very similar kitchen science on this a couple of weeks ago where, we, where you can cross-link um, PVA glue um, with borax, which you use for um, in laundry, and it forms a lo- wonderful kind of bouncy, strange solid, sort of rubbery solid. We have Tony on the phone. Hello, Tony. Good to talk to you there. Um, I just have a little question for Dr. Dave. Sounds good. Right, Doc. Um, in Lord of the Rings, like somebody like Gollum, whatever he was known, funny-looking geezer, they got a, an actor to do the thing, and then, then he looks like Gollum. Yes. You get my point. Now, I'm interested, first of all, to know how, how they do it. And could you do it to, say, a dozen people or whatever yes okay um basically what they were doing was they attached little sensors or i think little spots on side on top, on top of the act onto the actor uh-huh. and then they had him to sort of was standing around in a sort of um, black suit and they had lots of cameras looking at him and then as he moved around um all the different cameras took pictures of all the, the spots on his arm this sort of one one on his wrist one on his elbow one on each of his fingers and so, from if if you may, uh, uh, if you look at all different cameras, you can work out exactly where all the spots are. So you can work out exactly where all the different joints in his arms are, where his face is, and things like that. Um, and then they put all that information into a computer. So the computer now knows exactly what the actor was doing. And then inside the computer, basically, you've got an imaginary model of a golem. It's a bit. If you, it's a bit like a sort of toy, but it's all it's entirely imaginary inside the computer's yeah. um, imagination, as it were. Yeah. Um, and then, basically, as the actor moved, the computer moved the model of the golem inside inside its inside it inside the computer. Um, and then, so the computer now knows how Gollum ought to move. Um, and then um, Gollum is put in a in a landscape. Could be an imaginary landscape, or it could be um, having been videoed. And they set up lots of imaginary lights in this landscape. And then the computer carefully works out every beam of light coming out from these imaginary lights. And when they hit 
um, if they hit the ground, then they bounce off and form other beams of light. And if they hit Gollum, they bounce off, go in other directions. Um, and then you have then they have an imaginary camera. There's a lot of imagination involved in this. Uh, imaginary, <laughs> imaginary camera somewhere. It looks at what light ends up in the camera. And from that, it can build up a picture. Yeah, I think I've got a rough idea. But, I mean, they definitely um, can model huge numbers of um, soldiers and things. I mean, in Lord of the Rings, the really big fight scenes. Yes, I, you know, I, I, oh yes, of course, yeah. Yeah, those were all done on computers. And I'm they sure actually, they could do it. Because they spent actually an awful lot of time writing special computer code to give all the characters in the fight scenes different personalities. Really? Because if you make all the ca- ca- if you make get, give the computer lots hundred, hundreds and hundreds of soldiers and you all make them identical, then they all move in exactly the same way and they be- and they behave too predictably and they don't look like real people. But and, and they do the same movements, don't they, as the actual? Oh, with that, them they m- mostly I think sort of um, pro- essentially they had little computer programs associated with each soldier and they get, gave them orders and then the soldier would would know how to walk. And so if you told them all to march up the hill, then all the soldiers would march up the hill. But they made all I'm the soldiers with slightly yeah. different heights and slightly different speeds and things. Tony, thank you so much. Nighty night. Bye-bye. He's lovely. Um, Mando in Peterborough says um, Mr Jeremy Clarkson, Clarkson did a test where he walked away from a car testing the central locking. Every time he got further away, he eventually got to a point where it was out of range, then pointed it at his head and it worked. How is this possible? It is possible that his head is a better area. If it's a radio-based um, transmitter on the, for the central locking, it is possible that his head is a better aerial than the aerial inside the key because the key is very, very small. And it, it is entirely possible that the aerial inside the key isn't very good because it's not big enough. You put it next to his head, press the button, it makes electric currents flow in his head, which re-radiate um, radio waves. Um, and it could make the central locking work. It's certainly possible. I wouldn't say it would work all the time, and I expect it only works very close to the edge of the range. Mm. Also, he's lifting it higher, lifting the transmitter higher up, which will mean that it will probably got a better line of sight on the car. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget, you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 